pray. Lord, we thank you for another day, another Lord's Day. We thank you again for your goodness and your mercies to us that we see and experience each day. We thank you for your word that you have given and preserved and we still have today. We can read and study and understand, be able to believe rightly and live rightly accordance with your will. So again, Lord, we ask that you would give us strength and wisdom to be able to interpret your word in in the way that uh, is consistent with your word and uh, honors you. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, last week, of course, we had um, a unique Sunday school. and so let's we return then to what we've been talking about. And uh, let's see, we have the markers and such. Um, we have uh, most recently been talking about um, this term, the historical grammatical method of interpreting the scriptures. And uh, this is the method that we have been using in reform circles for 500 years. Uh, this is not anything new. Uh, I've been reading here recently about uh, eschatology and my read through Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. And uh, uh, he said, has said multiple times in regard to dispensationalism that this is a very new theological system. Um, when it comes to this interpretation, this is not new. Uh, in fact, you can go back before the Reformation uh, with Augustine and, and uh, Tertullian and Chrysostom and so forth, and then even, of course, back to the, the apostles and, and such before that. But, uh, but in um, our Reformed circles, this is something we've seen uh, for, for centuries. Unfortunately, in our day, we're getting away from it, and there's much more of a focus on the general sense of the passage, a very cursory, general, brief overview of what the passage might teach. And this is what we typically hear in most sermons and Sunday school lessons, and even in the PCA. Um, it depends on the church, depends on the, on the person and pastor, but uh, it is becoming more and more that way. And So anyway, the basic premise here is God revealed himself in history, and so we need to know the history that he revealed himself in. Simply, we need to know the stories of the scriptures. And uh, and then, secondly, um, he revealed himself in words. And in some ways, this is harder for some people, um, because everybody likes the story, right? Um, but in terms of words, it can be a bit um, challenging, especially for some. Uh, and yet... Uh, you can't even understand the story without understanding the words. And so we hear then the last couple times for this. We, we looked at John 3.16 and John 1.1 1, 1, uh, and looked at uh, the different words in those verses and um, didn't do a full analysis in, uh, of the verse, but basically we analyzed the verse and... Uh, and it helps us to understand what God is saying to us. Well, 
Uh, as always, we can say so much more about any one of these things. But uh, <clears throat> the next thing I want us to address is what we call genre. And uh, we've talked about some basic principles like this one, the historical grammatical method. We've talked about the uh, uh, basic principle of Scripture, interpret Scripture. And we've talked about a, uh, if you will, particular way of interpretation, and that is looking at the context. And so now, let's look at a bit more particular idea, and that is uh, genre. definition here is um, there are different types of literature and within those types they all um, are written in a certain way so you don't read poetry the same way you read apocalyptic you don't read prophecy the same way that you read say a parable there, there are different genres and so there are different rules if you will for each one of these. Now there's overlap, and so prophecy and apocalyptic are similar, and uh, narrative and epistle are similar, and yet there are clearly differences too. And and so I want to spend a little bit of time now talking about these different genres in the scriptures, and uh, and basically try to uh, learn these these rules these these. Uh, things to keep in mind as we read the different aspects of the scriptures because you know you don't read the comics the same way you read say an opinion piece in the wall street journal uh, you don't read the um uh, the stock market analysis in the wall street journal the same way you're going to read um oh i don't know some uh love story from um you know, Jeanette oak or you know whatever okay you're going to read them differently and, and that's something we do every day. And um, <clears throat> most of the time, we just don't think about it so much. So, <clears throat> in the scriptures then, there are a variety of genres. And one of the most common ones is what we call narrative, or you might, some people will call it history or story. And so that's what we're doing in Acts right now, looking at narrative. Now, there are things mixed in, but basically we're looking at the story. Um, when we did Exodus, um, the whole book is narrative, and yet you have law within it and uh, other elements of, of genre mixed in. But this is, uh, this is certainly one of the, uh, the main ones that we see. And I just mentioned another one, and that is genre of law. And certainly, we could say uh, that we see this in parts of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, especially, uh, even some in Numbers. And uh, 
so forth. <coughs> so we see elements um, usually scattered throughout. You know, maybe Leviticus, in some ways, the whole book is law, but again, usually it's a mixture in, uh, in a book. Next, of course, we have poetry. The first poetry we see in the scriptures is Genesis 2, when Adam spoke about his wife. Right? This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and so forth. Uh, obviously, Psalms, uh, many parts of the prophets are Hebrew poetry. And uh, we see some in the New Testament, but certainly not nearly as much. Um, then we have the genre of Proverbs. read Proverbs in the same way as you read a parable, for example. Um, come over here. I just mentioned this, the parable. <clears throat> How do you read a parable? And is it the same as allegory? And, and which is a parable and which is an allegory? Which is a... a uh, uh, a fable or something like that. So you look at, at some of these different things. And then you have the big fancy word we use here. It's not pericope or even periscope. It's pericope is how you pronounce the term. And uh, <clears throat> the basic point here of this is uh, we see this especially in the Gospels but you do see it in other places. And some scholars will use it in, in a variety of genres. And uh, uh, basically, what we're talking about is a, a, a certain section. So a pericope can be a parable in the Gospels. It can be a particular prophecy. Um, it, it can be just a, a short section talking about Jesus' healing or his teaching or something like that. So it, it, you might say pericope can be a broader term here, and it can encompass one of these other genres within it. And then we have the epistle, or a letter, and obviously most of the New Testament are epistles, not just Paul's. Peter's epistles, John's epistles, and so on. And so simply it's a letter. And you read a letter a little differently than you read something more formal, uh, like law, for example. And then um, of course you have prophecy. And prophecy will often include poetry, as I mentioned. Sometimes you'll have a proverb or even a parable with it. Uh, the idea of pericope can fit here. Um, prophecy, oftentimes, you think of Isaiah or Jeremiah or whatever, they went out and actually preached a message, and then it got written down. And so um, uh, it's just a variety of things. Law is part of it. Stories can be part of it and so forth. And then some people include this, but uh, I think it's helpful to keep it different, uh, separate. And that is the apocalyptic genre. The apocalyptic genre. And this one is, generally speaking, the most challenging 
just because um, you're dealing with images. Um, obviously, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, in particular, uh, at least portions of them are, are definitely apocalyptic. So how do you understand that? Um, you're talking about animals coming up out of the sea or out of the land. You know, what does that mean? Or we have trumpets blowing or bowls being poured out. And, you know, what does all that mean? How do we understand so, when we're talking about a book, and I mentioned Exodus here, um, you have a variety of these things. It's not just one, one thing. Um, obviously, the first half of the book is predominantly narrative, but then you see with the golden calf, you see a lot of narrative there in that section. And then, of course, law, especially chapters uh, 19 to 24, and, and so forth. And then the end of the book was the tabernacle. It's kind of a mixture of, of law and, and uh, even prophecy and, and narrative and, and so on. So these are the ones that we uh, typically will separate in the scriptures. And you can talk about some other things, uh, but usually we can include them under these categories. And uh, as I said, we often can mix them see a variety of them in a, in a particular book or, or section of the book. So, <clears throat> there's our, our basic overview. And so now let's, let's start with narrative and, uh, and talk about this. But before we do, do you have any questions or comments? narrative, um, like I said already, the basic idea here is a recounting of history, a telling of a story, and these are true stories. When you get into false stories, then you get into a different genre, uh, maybe poetry, maybe a parable, or something to that effect, uh, but we're talking about true history here, and um, <clears throat> sometimes we can debate on what is historical narrative, what is a different uh, genre, like Genesis 1, for example. Some people will say that Genesis 1 is not narrative, that it's um, something else, another kind of genre. Your framework hypothesis people in particular will try to say that it is not narrative history, um, but the burden of proof is on them, really, because it's quite evidently, I think, narrative but it's a recounting of real events, true history. And when we're talking about history, um, as you've probably heard before, right? It's his story. Uh, a simple way to uh, remember, ultimately, all history is God's history. It's his story. It's not just something that our history teacher has come up with or some some writer of a historical text, uh, but it's ultimately a recounting of what God has done. It's a writing down of his providence, the stories that he has uh, caused to happen. 
And so true history then is God-centered history. And so if you have revisionist history, like the 1619 Project that we keep hearing about here in the last while, um, that's revisionist history. It's not true history. They are imposing certain things back on the history of 1619 and uh, the settling of Jamestown and so on and so forth. And they're imposing on history things that uh, either are not true or are a very skewed version of what actually happened. And so true history is ultimately God-centered and accurately reflecting what what he had happen. Now the challenge here, of course, is we weren't there. We weren't there in 1619, 1620, or any other time in history. Uh, even if we think about what happened five years ago, you know, it's like, okay, now how did that actually happen? <laughs> and so the recounting of history uh, can be very biased, can be very one-sided, can be very uh, wrong. Um, and so um, discerning what is true history can be challenging. I'll, I'll never forget, um, I think I was in seminary and not college, where I wrote a paper on the Synod of Dort. And I checked out, you know, whatever it was, 12 or 15 uh, reference books and so forth. And depending on what I read, I got a different version of what happened. If I read the Arminian viewpoint, they gave their interpretation of what happened. If I read the Reformed viewpoint, they gave a different interpretation of what happened. So which one was true? Okay. We're doing the exact same thing today. You watch CNN and you get a certain view of what's happening today. You watch Fox News, you get a different version of what's happening today. Which one is true? Okay. And so... <clears throat> um, Sometimes Fox is completely wrong. Did you hear Neil Cavuto the other day of the stock market? He completely messed up what actually happened under Obama. Um, and so you, you, you need to think critically. You need to think carefully. Even, whether you're reviewing texts like Senate of Dort 400 years ago or something that has happened just in the last week, you need to, to, to be very careful with this. Um, and you know, the goal here ultimately is to honor God. Right? This is his story. If we wrongly reference history or record history, we are actually dishonoring God. And so that, you know, with the whole tearing down of the statues, things that are going on right now, they're wanting to rewrite history, not just an issue of racism. Now, I think for some people, maybe, yeah, they want to, talk about racism, but for for the radical left especially, they want to completely change the story of America. They don't want us to know the true story of the Founding Fathers, for example. Um, but ultimately, that dishonors God. And, and socialism, in the end, is a, a satanic version of, of uh, political theory, um, no matter what they say. Um, so true history must be accurate history. And it must then also be God-centered. Um, the hard part when we're dealing with um, history outside of the scriptures is we don't have an authoritative analysis of, of what actually happened. 
Okay? We don't have Paul giving us or Luke giving us a description of what happened at the Synod of Dort. That would be nice. <laughs> we just don't have that. Um, but what we have in Scripture, of course, is not just a, um, a religiously skewed version of what actually happened. We actually have an accurate history of what truly happened. So, as we've seen here in the book of Acts, Luke doesn't tell us everything. And Luke tells us a religious um, history. He tells us um, with a religious bias. But that's actually true history. Those who try to do it without any religious bias, that's not true history. It is false history. Um, And we've seen also Luke be a psychologist. We've seen in Philippi and Thessalonica, and we'll see it again here in Athens, he gives us the motivation of the people who are opposing the truth. This is true history because it is God-centered, and we have someone appointed by God, an apostle or a prophet, to interpret things for us. And uh, so this is really nice. You don't have to get 15 sources to figure out what happened in the Synod of Dort. <laughs> and you have one, or possibly four, with the Gospels to give us a true account of what actually happened. So, as always, we can say all kinds of things here about this particular topic. Um, but, um, one, it needs to be an accurate history and it needs to be God-centered. Well, the scriptures do that for us. So we have the trust factor, if you will. We can read it knowing that this is an accurate description and this is the history, this is the story that God wants us to know and understand. A lot more happened in the days of Jesus or the days of David or Abraham, but these details are the ones he wants us to know. So, that's kind of a broad broad idea. Um, So then, what are some characteristics, specifically, of narrative? Um, the one that you hear me say quite frequently is repetition. Okay? Repetition. It's very common in a variety of genres, but most common, probably, we could say, in narrative genre. Repetition. Um, part of it is to help to remember. The more times we hear it, the more likely we're to remember, especially when you're dealing with an oral culture that didn't have um, hundreds of copies. Probably even in our small church, including the church, we probably have hundreds of copies which we put everybody together. Um, you know, even a couple hundred years ago, there might only be a handful of copies in a church like ours, especially if you go back before the printing press. And it just didn't have as many. And so it helped to remember. Uh, but let's look at uh, an example here. Let's turn to Genesis 6. And sometimes we see this repetition in one verse or sentence or a few sentences or something like that. Genesis 6, verse 5, New King James puts it this way. 
And the Lord God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Hey, did you get the point? <laughs> hey, he didn't just say it once. He could have easily said, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and moved on. But by giving us the rest of the verse, it highlights how bad it got. And even in the rest of the verse, he could have said, uh, every intent of his heart was evil, or something to that effect. But no, he again adds all these words to, to pile up terms to impress upon us how bad it was. Again, this is common in the scriptures, common in narrative, uh, the repetition here. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 24. Sometimes the repetition is broader than that. And you may recall that here in chapter 24, this is when Isaac uh, was getting older and Abraham wanted to find him a wife. And he sent his servant back to his family to find a wife for Isaac. And basically, um, if you go all the way up to um, more or less verse 28, you have the first uh, main section of the chapter, and how the servant comes, and uh, Abraham sends him, gives him directions, and then he comes and he's like, okay, Lord, give me success, and about the woman coming to draw water, and, and so on and so forth, and all that happened, and then he introduces himself to her and she to him. Well, then verse 29, we hear about Laban, they come back and see about the ring, and then the man uh, she recounts what the man said, and now all of a sudden we're repeating everything. See, they're especially beginning in verse 30. And the man comes and, in verse 32, and then he starts speaking, verse 34, and you, you have virtually verbatim what happened earlier in the, verb, in the chapter. Now this is obviously um, to emphasize the point, isn't it? Moses very easily could have summarized everything here. Um, we've seen the same thing with Luke here in Acts. Uh, he gives us great detail in some things and a summary and very cursory description of other things. And, and so when you see the repetition, it's for a reason. And usually it's for memory and it's for emphasis. So that, you might say, you have half the chapter and then the rest of half of the chapter says the same thing. Not quite, but in a general sense. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter 1. And here the repetition is a little bit different. It is throughout the whole chapter, but it's done in a more, um, can you say, deliberate, careful arrangement kind of way. Um, so we have the same things for each day. So verse 3, day when, one, then God said. 
verse 6, then God said, verse 9, then God said, verse 11, then God said, verse 14, and on and on, right? You see this repetition showing the structure and, and arrangement for each day. Um, then you have the command, verse 3, let there be light, verse 6, let there be a firmament, verse 9, let there waters under the heavens be gathered, and so forth, verse 11, earth bring forth grass, and so forth. You have all these commands. The repetition of the structure for each day um, is for memory, and it's for emphasis. I think the emphasis is quite clear. It's saying this actually happened, and there's a progression of days. Again, I think this speaks against the framework hypothesis view, for example. Um, And then you see the report, as it's often called, for each one. And um, um, you you see there, and it was so, or something to that effect. Um, God's, uh, in verse 3 it says, and there was light. Um, And in verse uh, 7, thus God made the firmament and so forth. And at the end of verse 7, and it was so. So sometimes it's worded a little differently. You see at the end of verse 9 and and of verse 11. And then you see the evaluation, and God saw that it was good. So you see that in verse 4, and then you see it um, uh, in, let's see, where is that? That's right, on day 2 you don't see that because he wants to keep moving. So verse uh, uh, 10, and you know so forth, you see this analysis. And then of course the final one in verse 31 is very good. And then of course you see the evening and morning for each of these. And then you have the day that is referenced. So again, this is characteristic of narrative, this repetition. Now you might, some people call this exalted prose. This isn't as uh, straightforward story-like as what we were reading in chapter 24, for example. But still, this isn't poetry. It isn't prophecy. Uh, It isn't a parable or something like that. This is is narrative. Now let's uh, uh, do another example here. Let's turn to uh, 1 Timothy and chapter 2. now, this is not narrative, is it? It's a letter, epistle. An epistle is kind of like a story because Paul is addressing people, particular people, in a particular place. And so it's still very real, still very story-like, if you will, very narrative-like. And yet, it still is a letter, so it's got some different elements. But as I've said here now a few times, repetition is not only found in narrative found in other things. So here in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 7, you remember the word all is used repeatedly, seven times here in these verses. And so if we're going to interpret all in verse 4 one way, then we better interpret them all the same way. And so we often hear people say, well, God desires all men to be saved, and so they deny the idea of election. I think that fits with his other use of all uh, here uh, in this section. So anyway, um, just uh, briefly want to highlight how repetition is, is common in other genres too. 
All right. So this is the, the first key thing that we see. Do you have any questions or comments about this point? So when you hear me say in a sermon that this word is used however many times in the section, or notice how this repeats itself, just bringing out what the genre is teaching us to help you with memory, to help show the emphasis of the text. All right. Another thing that is often true is uh, you often see a key verse um, in narrative. Sometimes it's at the beginning of the section, sometimes at the end, sometimes at the middle. So, think of Genesis 1. We just looked at that. Is the key verse at the beginning, the end, or in the middle? And why? Which one? Now, verse 31 is also important because it's concluding everything, but I think verse 1 has to be more important than verse 31. And so I think we have to read Genesis 1 with the, the key verse being verse 1 because it sets up everything else. And in certain ways, everything else explains verse 1. The heavens and the earth. Well, God made it all. Uh, well, how did that happen? Well, it started with a formless creation, a void, voided, empty creation. Well, here's what God did to fill it and to order it. And that's the rest of the chapter. So I think we, we should understand verse 1 as, can you say, the topic sentence. Now, those who come from an old earth perspective or the framework perspective, they will not say the same thing. They will try to interpret verse 1 very differently uh, in that sense, but I don't, I don't think that makes much sense. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 9 here a moment. You remember the story here in Joshua 9. Uh, this is when the, uh, uh, the people came to Joshua claiming to be from a faraway land here, these people from Gibeah. And uh, in this case, you see um, verse 3, even verses 1 and following, okay, they, they kind of concoct the whole um, scam and scheme here. Uh, but I think we probably should look at verse 14 as the key verse of the whole chapter, right in the middle, literally, right? there are 27 verses, so you have 13 before, 13 after, right, smack dab in the middle, the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord, that's the key point, now when we say this, of course, it's not like the other verses are unimportant, but usually there's going to be one that will stand out above the rest, say, this is how we should understand the story. 
So when we're making decisions from day to day, let's seek God's counsel as we're doing so. Not after the fact, but as, as we're making those decisions. Um, let's turn then to 2 Samuel. Another familiar story here for us. Uh, chapter 11. Of course, the whole account here with David and Bathsheba and so on. And again, many important verses here. But if you look at the very end, verse 27, end of the verse. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So reading through the whole thing and we're like, oh man, this is terrible. What's David doing? And so forth. Well, at the end, the author of Second Samuel here tells us this was not good. So as you're reading through narrative, and, and this is true even beyond narrative, but especially in narrative, you're going to typically find a verse like this that will clue you in to the main point. Now, it may be part of a chapter, it may be a few chapters. We've just looked at a chapter at a time here. <clears throat> and you know, sometimes there are stories where there's no evaluation. And then we're left to guess a little bit. And how should we understand this? And so we think maybe of the whole Dinah incident. Or maybe we think about Judah and the situation with his daughter-in-law and so forth. Well, you don't really have an evaluation. You certainly have clues to how to evaluate it. But Moses didn't come right out and say, you know, well, uh, this was wrong. This was ungodly or something to that effect. So you read the whole passage along with other passages in Scripture to to help uh, discern and understand. But many times you're going to have a key verse. All right. Yeah, I think that would be one of those really important ones to evaluate. But Moses doesn't evaluate. You know, a separate narrator kind of perspective. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Other comments or questions? can. Yeah. What what's that, Joe? Yeah. Yeah. It can. Not always, but yeah. Uh, arguments from silence can be always a bit tricky, but sometimes they are very intentionally done that way. And, and we could even point to what we just saw there with David and Bathsheba. There, there's no complete silence until the very end (laughs) and thankfully we have that but even if that last statement was not there 
the silence would be quite loud, wouldn't it? Uh, because it's pretty evident. Sixth commandment, seventh commandment, eighth commandment, <laughs> and tenth commandment, we could keep going. All those being broken. But yeah, sometimes silence is, is quite definite. Alright. A third key thing here is what is the lesson that we are learning? And it's going to be a theological one. Um, you know, what often happens in Sunday school or Bible school or something like that is that the kids learn the story. They don't necessarily learn the lesson, or maybe they don't learn the right lesson, or maybe they don't learn the full lesson. They just learn a part of it. Um, you know, like with David and Goliath, for example, what we often hear is, you know, well, the underdog's going to win. Like, that's not really the point. That's the way our, our culture has taken it and taken God out of it, you might say. But that's not the point. The point is... David was so upset that this Philistine was mocking God that he was going to do anything to stop it. And so David trusted God and God gave him success. That's the main lesson. It's not what do the five stones represent. It's not any of these kind of crazy things that people will point out. It's not about his brothers rebuking him. It's not about uh, the fact that the, the... the armor wouldn't fit and he couldn't lift the sword. You know, it's, those are all part of the story. The main point is he, he was so offended that somebody was mocking his God that he was going to stop it. And, and that's our main lesson. Um, the, uh, well, let's turn here. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 12 a moment. You know, what often happens is we read Genesis 12, verses 1 to 9, and then we stop, and then we read verses 10 to, what is it, 20, um, and uh, the end of the chapter, and we read it in isolation. We don't put them together. And so some people say, oh, see, look, it's okay to lie to those you don't trust or something like that. It's like, that's not the point. The point is, verses 1 to 3 were forgotten when Abraham went to Egypt. That's the lesson here. Abraham went, and yeah, he had a right not to trust Pharaoh. And yes, his wife was beautiful, and he it's not surprising that he'd be concerned about what might happen. Okay. But in the end, he wasn't trusting the promises that God gave to him. God promised to make him a mighty nation. God promised to curse those who cursed him. God promised to give him the land. And he leaves the land and immediately forgets the promises. And he lies to Pharaoh. He does not live by faith. That's our theological lesson. Verses 1 to 3, and even verse 7, impact how we interpret verses 10 to 20. But you've probably heard people say, well... Look, here's Abraham. He's lying. It's okay. And they forget verses 1 to 3. And they also forget chapter 13 and chapter 16 and how Hagar was one of these slaves given to him and how because they now had so much, Lot had to leave the land. And there are 
a lot of bad implications from this decision. So the point here is, are we going to trust in ourselves or are we going to trust in God? I've said on other occasions, uh, I think um, half-truths like Abraham uses here in order to uh, intentionally deceive and not trust the Lord, what God just said, trust me, um, I think should be condemned. But at the same time, um, half-truths are something that we see regularly being used in the scriptures. Think of what David did when he was escaping Saul. And there is no condemnation of, of that um, in the scriptures. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and, and in the case of the midwives, um, I'm not sure they were lying. Um, because the text clearly says there were so many babies being born the implication is they couldn't keep up with it. Um, but um, uh, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to keep back some some truth to people. But it's it's an easy line to cross. And I think Genesis 12 is saying that this was sinful on Abraham's part. I'm not convinced that in Saint, what, I forget the chapter there with David, that the author is condemning David. He responds, yes, but I'm not sure that the fact that Jesus quotes it in a positive way, I'm not sure we can take that the same way we can take Genesis 12. Um, but obviously it raises a bunch of questions. <laughs> Maybe it's just as simple he changed his mind. Um, yeah. Well, when you when you come to this point here, what's the theological lesson of a story? Uh, this is where you can get off into la-la land. <laughs> and people can really miss the point. And this is what makes narrative challenging. But if you follow the ideas of repetition, key verse, you how does it fit into the broader story of, of the book and, of course, the Bible? Uh, you can arrive at the right theological lesson, but it can be hard sometimes to, uh, to do so. Um, but we're going to have to look for it. It's not just to fill our minds with information. It's to learn from it. All right. Well, we better quit here, so uh, let's pray again. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. And uh, though it can be challenging to understand certain passages and ideas, uh, many of them are very straightforward for us. And uh, we pray that you would help us to interpret these various genres in the way you intended them here, especially with narrative. And uh, you would be uh, honored.
honored in it, we might rightly divide your word to, to live for you. We pray now for our, our worship, that you would bless it, and that you would be glorified in, in our time uh, here this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 